Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for 16 clinical trials. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. A report released last month by South Central PA Works indicated there are 25,000 more jobs available in South Central Pennsylvania than there are workers seeking employment. 55,000 job openings, 30,000 people who are out of work. While this might suggest that we have unemployment licked, the numbers indicate something more troubling. Joining us on today's program is Jesse McCree, who is the CEO of SCPA, a nonprofit regional agency that connects businesses with trained employees and promotes economic development. Mr. McCree, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having us here, Scott. Also, Eileen Cipriani, who is Deputy Secretary for Workforce Development with the Pennsylvania Department of Labor and Industry. Ms. Cipriani, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. And also joining us, Jeff Newman, Central PA Labor Market Analyst with the PA Department of Labor and Industries Center for Workforce Information and Analysis. Mr. Newman, welcome to the show. Good morning, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. That's the number to call. Or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Jessica McCree, I'm going to start with you since you put the report out last month. Uh, the numbers I just alluded to, 55,000 jobs openings in the eight counties surrounding the Harrisburg area, South Central Pennsylvania, uh, 30,000 people looking for work. Those numbers, I mean, that's a that's a big disparity, 25,000. Even if all 30,000 people get there, still would be 25,000 job openings. Why, do, why that disparity? Well, Scott, it's a, it's a really interesting piece when you look at the labor market. Uh, the labor market, by its very nature, is very dynamic. There are people that are seeking work every day. There are people that are leaving their jobs every day looking for better opportunities. So the nature of labor markets, you're going to have this, we call it job churn, where you're going to have a certain number of people that are looking for work every month. But what we see here is that the labor market in South Central Pennsylvania is extremely competitive. And the number one issue that we hear from businesses when we talk every day is workforce development. We can't find the skilled workers that we need to fill those open jobs to help keep our company competitive. So in some ways, it's a it's a blessing and a curse. We have a very competitive region, uh, an economy that's strong and growing and relatively low unemployment across the region. But what that means is that in some cases, businesses are not able to fill those positions to uh, keep their business driving forward. So what we're seeing here is that, that there's about a one to one and a half uh, jobs per person looking for work here across the country. And we see that here in South Central Pennsylvania. So our job and our role is really to be able to build that talent pipeline to get those people that are currently on the sidelines in the job market with the training and the skills that they need to go after those jobs that are in excess of the number of people that are unemployed. So it really is a, it's a workforce issue, but it's also an economic development issue because we need to put those people back to work in order to continue to grow this economy at the rate that we need to. All right, so what kind of jobs are we talking about? Good question. So whenever we talk about large numbers like this, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of layers that we need to dive into. Uh, the key sectors that we see in our region are manufacturing, healthcare, 
uh, transportation, warehousing, distribution. These are the key sectors uh, that really are driving a lot of this growth. So what we're seeing is that there are a lot of entry-level jobs. There's a lot of seasonal work that is appearing in that 55,000 number. But continuing, we're seeing the the demographics in this region shift. The average age uh, of a manufacturing worker in this region is north of 55. So when you talk about over the next 10 years, we're going to see an increasingly large percentage of that workforce that's retiring. So we need to be ready and, and well positioned to train the workers to not only fill those replacement jobs, but also the jobs that are going to grow, the excess uh, that will continue as that manufacturing sector grows. So we're seeing a large variety of entry-level jobs and also higher-level jobs uh, of folks that have been in those positions for 30 years, and we need to build that talent pipeline to make sure that we've got someone ready to go uh, when they retire. All right. So of the industries you named, and you said earlier that uh, employers are saying that uh, they can't find workers yeah. who have the skills they need uh, to, to fill those jobs. So what industries in particular, now I mean just a, a few that you mentioned, but mm-hmm. what industries in particular are having trouble finding skilled workers? So I spoke to a company that will remain nameless for the purposes of this program uh, in our region, uh, a very large company, manufacturing. And uh, in one afternoon, uh, this was about nine months ago, in one afternoon they had 486 years of experience walk out the door. 486 years of experience. That was in the manufacturing sector, and we hear that almost every day. That probably is the one that... Uh, sort of grounds our work the most because manufacturing is such a key sector in our region and we have an aging uh, demographic that's working in that sector. So we're really seeing that that's a key piece of when you have that many years of institutional knowledge walk out the door based on retirement, we need to build that talent pipeline through on-the-job training, apprenticeships, work-based learning, uh, demand-driven and employer-shaped curriculum in the schools so we can help build this talent pipeline before it's too late. Mm-hmm. Eileen Cepriani, um, the research, as I mentioned, uh, is for eight counties in South Central Pennsylvania. The unemployment rate for the Harrisburg region is 4.2%. Lancaster, York, Gettysburg, all those labor markets have low unemployment rates. But when I hear these numbers, when there are 25,000 more jobs than the workers to fill them, why isn't that unemployment rate even lower? Well, there's a lot of people that I think are waiting on the sidelines, waiting to come into the workforce. We we are seeing some of them coming in. Um, But what Jesse's saying is about what's going on here in in this local area in Lancaster is a microcosm of what's going on throughout the state. We're seeing this everywhere in the state, that there are a lot of jobs that need to be filled. And in particular, in manufacturing sectors, IT sectors, we're having a, a lot of open jobs. So businesses are really trying to come to the table and work with us. And we've been working a lot with our economic development partners to try and team up to tackle this together. But getting back to my, mm-hmm. my question, though, about uh, why isn't the unemployment rate? I, I mean, I know there are factors in there, and I've been told by people appearing on this program over the years that the unemployment rate really is not a good statistic to look at when it gives you, it's kind of a barometer, but it's not the most accurate statistic at, to look at with, to find out how many people are looking for jobs who are out of work. Right, because the unemployment rate are just the people that we can account for that are looking for work through that come in through our processes or 
have been through the unemployment compensation system. I mean, there's a lot of other people out there that might be looking through other methodologies to get into the workforce. One of the areas that we try to serve very hard are individuals that we call people who have barriers to employment. Mm -hmm. And it might be issues, it might be transportation issues, which is, uh, which is in, especially in rural areas, is a very significant issue to getting into the employment. And then we have other individuals that have been spent a long time out of the workforce that are just trying to come back in, or under other individuals that maybe need a GED, English as a second language. So those are the individuals that we concentrate on through our workforce development system to try and bring the resources together to get them trained and put them in the pipeline to get them into these jobs. A couple other factors, and Jesse, I'll come back to you in just a moment, but a couple other factors that, uh, that this research showed, and we have heard it before, is that, you know, we know we have an opioid crisis in this state and across the country. We're hearing from a number of employers that they're having trouble finding, I don't know whether that's the correct way to put it or not, but to put it this way, there are a lot of job candidates who cannot pass a drug test. That's one thing. The other thing is that a lot of these job candidates uh, do not have the soft skills they need. Address both of those things, if you will. You know, as far as the drug tests go, I remember in this building, former Governor Tom Corbett mentioned that, you know, anecdotally hearing that uh, there were employers out there who said, you know, we're having people finding, and he was uh, you know, passing a drug test, and he was criticized roundly for it, but now it seems to be a given that that's a problem. Well, we, we don't particularly have any data sets that we could pinpoint numbers for you. But to it's say an anecdotal it is. Thing, But anecdotally, yeah. yes, we hear that from businesses. And not all businesses find this because not all of them do drug testing right. uh, as part right. of their entrance into the workforce. But anecdotally, we do hear this from businesses. But more so, we hear the soft skills issue. And we invest a significant amount of resources into the soft skill issues. I know Jesse has a number of programs that he runs through his workforce development area, but it's issues as timeliness coming to work, communication skills, teamwork, uh, everyday mathematics. And these are issues that uh, we're finding in people entering into the workforce that don't have these skill sets. So that's why a lot of the work-based learning is important. And even these jobs that Jesse mentioned, the, the lower paying jobs, we call them transitional jobs. And it might be you're going into McDonald's and working, but you learn how to work in the workplace. You have those work-ready skills that you could lead on to something else, and it's a career pathway for people to go through. Mm -hmm. Jeff, do you want to say something, Jesse? Yeah, I just wanted to respond a little bit to, because I, I think, Eileen, your points are you're excellent. Uh, one of the, the metrics, if you look at the unemployment rate, and Scott, you mentioned this, it, it is a barometer, and it doesn't necessarily capture the entirety of the folks that are not currently looking for work. To your point, Eileen, mm -hmm. it's only those that we can account for. I think an interesting... Um, labor market statistic that we take a look at that is somewhat alarming to us across the country, the state, and even locally is the labor force participation rate. That is the rate of the people that are, you know, of working age that are actively either seeking work or are in work. And that has been over the last 40 or 50 years. I mean, that across the country is a historically low number. When we see that labor force participation rate start to tick up, to Eileen's point, that's where those that are on the sidelines, those that with, with barriers to employment, those that don't have work history, those that were formerly incarcerated, those have low literacy levels. We as a workforce system have done the work to bring them from the sidelines, not actively in the labor force, and brought them in with the work-ready skills that they need to be competitive. 
that to me is an economic growth story that makes our work so exciting and so compelling. But the challenges that you're talking about is we have more jobs available than we have people that can fill them. Well, yeah. You, I mean, you use the word uh, competitive. When mm-hmm. you're in a competitive workforce and an employer can look at someone and say, okay, uh, this person doesn't show up on to work on time or uh, has been incarcerated or you know, does not have, has kind of a checkered uh, work uh, history. And this guy over here shows up on time and you know may have the same kind of backgrounds except for those things those people who have those issues on their resumes they're going to have a problem so jeff newman go ahead yeah i I saw you nodding here and i wanted to get you into the conversation well you talk about there being more jobs than there are unemployed um, but i believe this was even brought out in the article in the york daily record um was that there are a lot of people out there who have accepted part-time jobs because they needed work or they've accepted a job much below their skill level for the same reason they needed work. So those same people that already have jobs are applying for some of those 55,000 jobs. So it's not always that there's this many people looking in this many jobs, there's continually turning of people trying to improve. Uh, Because a lot of people had to take uh, jobs that they would normally say, that's not for me, uh, when they were out of work. I would imagine also, and we're using these figures from the report, 55,000 to 30,000, and we'll just use it as a baseline, but I would imagine there also are a lot of people out there that said, you know what, I, you know, I've worked for years. I was making fifty, sixty, seventy-five thousand dollars a year. I am not going to take a part-time job. I am not going to take an entry-level job where I'm maybe making twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars a year, and that probably adds to these statistics. Would you agree, Jeff? Oh yes, definitely. You know that there are people who look at themselves as overqualified. When do those people say, you know what, I have to take that part-time job because I need something? When unemployment runs out? Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Uh, I I went through that. I was unemployed. And uh, believe me, uh, before I got the job at labor and industry, I was looking at grocery stores and convenience stores, Uh, something I thought I'd never do. But... I needed to do something because the unemployment was running out. Jessica, I think this is something you refer to as job stigma, right? Yeah, yeah. There is a there is a job stigma that that definitely is a is a. Uh, it's hard to measure. It's hard to quantify what that is. But to your point, Scott, it's uh, um, uh, a pay cut or a, um, a cut in sort of the job status that sometimes is a is a barrier to those that want to take that work. And I think what we're talking about here is this term underemployment, which again is a little bit of a gray area. What is someone who is underemployed? Some of it is in the eye of the beholder. I think I should be making this amount or I used to be a manager and now I'm not. But I think what we're trying to overlay on top of our labor market is the education, the training, and the credentials that people have, and then the jobs that they should be able to get and the, the salary that they should be able to be competing at, we're seeing there is still some slack in our labor market for people who are underemployed. So again, when someone's underemployed, they're not counted in that 30,000 unemployed, but they could be candidates to go after some of those 55,000. What do they need to get those jobs? They may need on-the-job training. They may need to go back to school. They may need some sort of short-term credential that an employer says, if you get this credential, we'll hire you. Again, that's where the investment from the workforce development boards comes in and we think adds value to the labor market to really help those that are currently at 
perhaps dead end jobs or low wage, low skill work that we can help upskill to be a little bit more competitive. You know, you just used the term dead end jobs. Yeah. And this kind of goes back to that stigma you were talking about. Many of these people who have had good paying jobs, who have been laid off or company went away, the job went away, think of those lower paying jobs as dead end jobs. Yeah. So it's an attitude kind of thing. It, it, too. Sometimes that it is. Um, I, to, to frame it up maybe in a more positive way okay, would be. Okay, do that. So, because I agree, some people do view them as dead end jobs, and to some degrees, they're not. Um, they are a step down, and so therefore, there's that stigma. But I think so. An, another layer of complexity in here is that we see very low participation rates for youth and young adults in the labor market. Now, you could wax philosophical about why that is, about schools that shy away from wanting high school students to get into the labor market, but instead push more of a, an academic track. But we see really low participation rates with youth and young adults. A lot of times those entry-level jobs are perfect for someone who's 17, 18, 19, 20. It's their first job. It's their first experience. So they are working at a grocery store. They're working at a convenience store. They're working retail salesperson. And that's their first experience. Youth and young adults learn to work by working. So in some cases, those jobs really could be more tailored to a younger subset, which then frees up some of the more... Uh, mid to higher level jobs for people that have some more experience in the labor force. We're going to talk about training and workforce development in just a moment. First, let's take a phone call from Hannah in Harrisburg. Hannah, you're on the air. Hi. How are you guys? Doing well. Um, I just wanted to comment about the ratio you guys have talked about earlier about how there are more jobs than there are people unemployed as far as like the data is concerned. And I feel like as a single mother myself, and speaking for a lot of people I know in this area at least, um, a lot of those jobs that are available pay between like minimum wage, which is seven twenty five and maybe ten dollars an hour, which is not enough to also pay for daycare. So a lot of people I know are unemployed because it's easier for them to be unemployed than to have a job and pay for daycare at the same time. Mm. Hey, Hannah, thank you very much for your call. She brings up a great point that, uh, if, you know, I, I have to admit that uh, just a few months ago I learned how much daycare does cost compared to when my children were little, uh, that how much daycare does cost. And this is a huge expense for even, you know, a family where there's a mother and father working, let alone a single parent. Um, and, you know, the point that Hannah makes, it's sometimes you have to decide whether it's worth, you know, keeping that uh, 100 hours a week uh, after daycare, rent, mortgage, whatever. Right. It's an excellent point that she's making. And, you know, it's, there's, those are the folks that are sitting on the sidelines often waiting to jump into the workforce, looking to see if, if the pressure on wages will finally bring them up so that they they're have a family-sustaining or life-sustaining wage. So th this is a significant problem. And, and even people that might leave the workforce to take care of an elderly parent, they can't afford to have their parent taken care of by a, a professionals. They, they stay at home because they can't afford it. So what do you do? Well, what we're looking for is a lot of the training that does that Jesse does. So if we could get individuals like that back into training programs so that we could upskill them so that they're prepared for a higher wage job, um, there, she sounds like a perfect candidate for a lot of our workforce development programs that we could bring her in, upskill her, and then, then she's ready for a higher paying job. Jeff, I want to bring you into this. I mean, part of your job uh, with workforce information and analysis, I want to kind of follow up on what Jesse had said earlier about young people that 
we really are lacking a lot of young workers. Do you see that when uh, you know people are coming to the Department of Labor industry, you know, the job, the career centers? What are they saying, and what are they looking for? Well, I'm going to defer to Eileen on this one because I don't get involved with that. If I could, before we're done, so sure. I'd like to talk a little bit about trends. Go ahead. But, go ahead. Talk about the trends. Then we'll okay. go back to the. Well, the trend, um, health care and social assistance has been the big jump. That has been That's continu- where the jobs are. That's been growing for years, and even to the point where it grew during the recession. It, um, in their region, it gained about 5,000 jobs during the recession, and over the state it was about 50,000 jobs during the recession. So that is probably, and it is the biggest uh, sector right now. Uh, however, we have heard on the campaign trail, and the statistics show it, that manufacturing over the long haul has been on the decline. Um, th- it declined during the recession and has come back a little, but not a lot. So I fear that there are a lot of people that aren't looking to get that skill set because they keep hearing manufacturing jobs are leaving. Uh, it's going to be going overseas or replaced by robots mm-hmm. or whatever. So I, I would think that that is an issue uh, if there is a shortage of people with the skills for manufacturing jobs. Let me just bring up a couple numbers here. Uh, I saw that uh, last year in Pennsylvania there were almost 600,000 manufacturing jobs uh, and saw one estimate that that may be cut in half within the next 20 years by automation. That is not good news. Also in retail, one in 10 Pennsylvanians work in retail and over the next 20 years that may change a whole lot because of uh, people shopping online, their shopping habits changing, uh, that those retail jobs weren't. So the question arises, what do we do? I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of jobs. What do we do in the next 20 years? You know, when you talk about the manufacturing sector, Jesse touched on it before, the aging workforce. Uh, I've heard it referred to as the silver tsunami, that so much of institutional knowledge is walking out the door in these companies. And automation has been has had a, a significant effect on the labor force in manufacturing. But what it's also brought in is a new set of occupations. We have jobs in uh, robotics, uh, megatronics, um, industrial maintenance jobs that are a much higher level job. And they're jobs where we're seeing a shortage right now. So we need to use training programs, such as Jesse's talked about the um, work-based learning but one of the things that we use a lot for that is apprenticeship programs. So we've had a significant uh, investment in the state in in apprenticeship programs, especially around the manufacturing industry. We only have a couple minutes left. I want to thank the three of you for being with us today. So I want to get back to workforce development and what we can do to get people trained for these job openings. I mean, if you look at those numbers, those that's actually good news. There are jobs there. You just have to get that training and get that experience. And the only way to get the experience is get the job. But what are we doing about it? Well, one of the things we're doing is that we just took a, a large step backwards into the middle schools and high schools and looking at career readiness programs, career awareness programs, because one of the things we see is, and, and Jesse pointed this out before, is as students go through high school, they tend to trend on into a four-year education. We need to uh, make sure that they're aware of there's so many good paying jobs in Pennsylvania that require some post-secondary education. Uh, Maybe it's a training program, on-the-job training, or a two-year degree. But we need to heighten the awareness around that and direct our students into these careers and make sure they know about them. 
And, and that is a real challenge because uh, over the last 10 or 20 years, we've heard uh, so often that uh, your, your path to success is you do well through your 12 years of school, and then you decide on a, on a college, a good college, you go to four years, you get your bachelor's degree, maybe you go for a, a graduate degree, and then you're set for life. We haven't been pushing people through the Votech programs, through the technical schools. We need more of that. Absolutely. And I think that's the key to our success right now. So we've been working very hard in that space, trying to raise awareness and direct, because we have so many good technical schools in Pennsylvania. I think Forbes put out a list. There was 30 of the 30 in the nation. Five of them are in Pennsylvania technical schools. So we have the education here. We just need to heighten the awareness and make sure that students know about these jobs. And these are good paying jobs. These are good paying jobs. The average manufacturing salary in Pennsylvania is $60,000. So these are good paying jobs. Sometimes I think we need to educate the parents that that the measure of success is not a four-year degree. It's a family-sustaining job. I want to thank all three of you for being with us today. Jesse McCree, CEO of South Central PA uh, Works, a nonprofit regional agency that connects businesses and trained employees. Eileen Cipriani, she's Deputy Secretary for Workforce Development with the Pennsylvania Department of Labor and Industry. And Jeff Newman, he's the Central PA Labor Market Analyst with the Department of Labor and Industry. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks Thanks for having us. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We are in the midst of WITF's fall fundraising campaign. I say the midst. It's actually the last day. We are down to the last day, and I'm joined by Marie Cusick, who is WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter. Marie, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Scott. So let's talk about uh, why we, you out there should support <laughs> WITF. Well, I would say uh, the easiest way to do it is to go online to WITF.org or call us at 1-800-233-9483. And why should you support us? Well, I'd say the reason is because we provide this service to you over the air for free every day. You know that we're going to be here for you. And we just come on the air a few times a year to ask you, uh, to remind you that uh, we'd like you to be here for us and that you are the reason that WITF is able to bring you important news and information programming from around the world, from around the country, and from right here in the mid-state. You know, Marie, I always uh, use you as an example when I'm uh, in a, in a a fundraising break because oh, really? <laughs> oh yeah I do because uh, I think many times uh, uh, a lot of people don't think about the the reasons that uh, we ask for your your financial support uh, you know they think maybe pay for the programs the NPR programming a lot of the other programs we do but I use you as an example because State P- Impact Pennsylvania uh, you covered uh, Pennsylvania's energy economy, you probably travel, at least on our our staff, our new staff, probably travel more than anyone else around the state. Talk about that. Yeah, I do put a lot of miles on the car. And, you know, this is what what costs the station money. I cost the station money. Not only, (laughs) well, they have to pay all of our salaries, but also just going out and gathering news. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes money. You can't just sit in an office and make phone calls or Google things. I mean, sometimes that happens, unfortunately, uh, this day and age. But 
uh, you really need to go out, talk to people, be on the ground, meet people. Be you know, I go, I go all over the state. I drove over 300 miles last week for the story I'm working on. It should be ready hopefully next week. <laughs> um, and uh, part of part of what we like to point out too is that this project that WITF invested in and we were partners with WHYY in Philadelphia on, um, we, we were really at the forefront of covering this whole Marcellus Shale natural gas boom. And s- folks in central Pennsylvania may, may have thought at the beginning, well, that's not happening in my backyard. You know, a few years ago, there really wasn't, I mean, there's no drilling going on here, but now it is in our backyard because part of the the boom is uh, moving this stuff to new markets and there's all kinds of pipeline construction going on. So we've been following this story very closely for years. And uh, that's just one of the, you know, the on the ground reporting, hopefully you value that. And um, we're just asking you to step up and uh, support it financially. And the other exciting news, I'll just give us a plug, is we recently um, got a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to expand the project. So we'll also be partnering with WESA in Pittsburgh and the Allegheny Front in Pittsburgh. So we're going to be bringing you even more great uh, energy and environmental stories. And State Impact Pennsylvania is just one of the projects that the WITF has on a uh, on a daily basis. I mean, we have Emily Pleverty with uh, uh, Keystone, Keystone Crossroads, Crossroads looking mm-hmm. at the challenges facing uh, Pennsylvania cities. Katie Meyer does a fantastic job covering the state capitol here in I think Katie worked like 21 hours. I know, I know. <laughs> she probably still is sleeping after. We hope she's <laughs> taking a break. <laughs> but all those things do cost money. And uh, as Marie said, we only come to you a few times a year asking for your financial support and if it is something that uh, you do value and you do appreciate we ask you to go to witf.org or to call 1-800-233-9483 and become part of the witf family and again this is the last day of our fall fundraising campaign so if you've already contributed or if you're already a sustainer and you're a regular listener we want to say thank you uh it it really means a lot to us what you know scott one of my favorite things about doing these uh fundraising campaigns is just to see we have a spreadsheet here on a computer and then in the studio just to see it light up with different names different people from all over the region it's are there re- some new members of the family um, you i need welcome? to scroll down ah. so sorry I, I don't have it's uh, not updated but what uh, i can tell okay. you is it's it's just really honestly as somebody who you know i work here and i i try to work hard and do a good job but this is really one of the most inspiring things to it me really every is. time it works you guys come through and it, it means so much to us so if you haven't done so already again this is our last day uh, please consider making a pledge of support whatever fits in your budget maybe it's a one-time gift of a hundred dollars maybe you want to be a sustainer and give a monthly gift of ten dollars a month twenty dollars a month thirty dollars a month i mean or a dollar a day we love those folks who want to donate a dollar a day with a three hundred $65 gift. Whatever works for you. Um, if you haven't done so yet, please go online now to WITF.org or call us at 1-800-233-9483. Thank you very much, Marie. And I always encourage uh, during the show when we're fundraising, encourage uh, fans of Smart Talk, uh, those who listen to Smart Talk on a daily basis, to uh, to support Smart Talk and support WITF overall by going to WITF.org or calling 1-800-233-9483. Bones Brothers Horses Cartels and the Borderland Dream is the true story of two brothers born in a Mexican border town who pursued two very different lifestyles and were later brought together again by a money laundering operation involving racehorses, drug cartels, and the FBI. The author of the book is Joe Tone. He joins us to discuss today. Joe, welcome to the program. 
Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. If you have a question or comment about what you're going to hear over the next few minutes, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Just a fascinating book, Joe. So let me start. There's a lot to talk about. We'll try to hit some of the highlights here in the next few minutes. A large Mexican family from near the border town of uh, Nueva Laredo, right over the Texas border. Two brothers, Jose and Miguel Trevino, go in different directions. One is considered the good brother, while the other is a kingpin in a Mexican drug cartel. Tell us about uh, Jose and Miguel. Yeah, you you got it exactly right. They grew up just over the border, and their father uh, disappeared. It's not exactly exactly clear what happened to him, but uh, basically, the brothers started, as people do, flowing over the border looking looking for work, and they ended up in Dallas. And... um, they they all went to work in various ways, but a lot of them started laying bricks, and they were laying bricks all over Dallas, and they were building kind of the the foundations of a nice sort of working class American life. Um, but the oldest brother, who was kind of the patriarch, he ended up doing a little bit of uh, well, it wasn't a little bit; it was some significant uh, marijuana smuggling. Um, and this is this is back, you know, uh, 20 years ago when when marijuana was far away from being legalized in a lot of states. And so he got caught. He wasn't a kingpin, but he, he smuggled enough weed that he went away for 20 years. And so that kind of set the family on a new course. A, uh, a few of the brothers got sucked into the trafficking business, which if you're from Nuevo Laredo, which is a major smuggling corridor uh, right there along the border, it's a, it's a major shipping corridor. A lot of um, legitimate goods go across that those bridges there in Nuevo Laredo. So if you're from there, it's easily it's easy to get sucked into the smuggling game, and a lot of them did. But Jose uh, did not, and so Jose stayed there in Dallas and kept laying bricks and got married, became an American citizen. His wife worked her way up from working at McDonald's to working in a support role at Ernst and Young, and he kept laying bricks for some pretty reputable contractors there. Uh, in Dallas, and he did that for for decades, and really never, even though he stayed close to his family, and a lot of his family uh, brothers and nephews and cousins got sort of sucked into the smuggling uh, business. He never did. He managed to sort of resist it for many years. But then there's Miguel. Miguel rose to the top of the drug cartel Los Zetos. Uh, describe this cartel and talk about Mar- uh, Miguel, if you would. Yeah, that's right. So Miguel was there uh, in Dallas laying bricks as well around the time that their oldest brother got sent away. And Miguel kind of had the opposite reaction. Instead of sort of putting his head down and continuing to lay those bricks, he fled back to Mexico, got a job uh, in a local gang there in Nuevo Laredo, um, just sort of driving the bosses around, running little errands. And he was sort of a loyal foot soldier and just kind of rose the ranks. Uh, and then around in the late 90s, Los Etes, um, they had, Los Etes had started as a sort of enforcement unit for the Gulf Cartel, which is one of the big uh, cocaine and other drug smuggling um, organizations in Mexico. And Los Etes were their protectors. They were all these former um, special forces guys in the Mexican army who had been, a lot of them had been trained in the United States um by the american military uh to be sort of elite soldiers in the mexican army but 
they're fighting this battle against the drug cartels, which are politically connected, and they're losing. And so eventually the Gulf cartel just offered these guys jobs, and they all flipped and started working for the Gulf as the sort of unit of mercenaries. And they came into Nuevo Laredo and basically said, hey, all you, all you uh, little piddly smuggling gangs, we're in charge now. And a big fight broke out, and Miguel sort of fell in with the Zetas. And he, he and they together kind of changed the rules of drug trafficking in Mexico. They used to sort of operate by the same kind of um, rules of, of the mob wars, where you know you used violence when you needed to, but it was really mostly in protection of your business, and you took care of the sort of the businesses in your community um, while also, you know, um, taxing them, I guess, in a way. But these guys were sort of publicly and uh, grotesquely violent, so, sort of as a way of, of showing themselves as being the new bosses in town. And Miguel was right there with them. And so they were, you know, among the groups that really started to um, commit the acts of violence that have become sort of synonymous with the drug war, whether it's hanging bodies from bridges or beheading people, um, burning people in, in uh, barrels of... or. Uh, of fire and acid and all the stuff that we now kind of see. And Miguel was right there, right there with them while his brother Jose was back in Dallas laying bricks. Now, there are so many aspects to this story, uh, but racing quarter horses is a huge sport in the southwestern part of the country and in Mexico. Uh, what is quarter horse racing? Give us a sense of how big it is, and then I'll, I'll, if you could just give that description, and then we'll talk about where this falls into the story. Yeah, yeah, it's, it feels like a big left turn when you, when yeah, you put yeah, them back to back like that, but they, <laughs> they, they, they do come together, right? they do. Um, yeah, quarter horse racing is, uh, is old. I mean, it started in colonial America, where basically you know, people were racing horses down these kind of uh, one-on-one you know, match races, for a quarter of a mile, which is why it's called that, down at, down the sort of you know center lane of a new village or whatever, and it eventually kind of migrated and became the sort of most popular version of horse racing in Mexico and in the Southwest. And so, quarter horses are great ranch horses. They're 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 also known as cow ponies. So they're they're great on a farm, and they're quick. They can get out of the gate real fast, and they can run for about a quarter mile fast, but then they, they sort of poop out. So they don't have the kind of long sort of loping stride as a thoroughbred racing. It's a little more, um, it's just a little grimier. It's kind of NASCAR to Formula One. And um, cowboys, both Mexican cowboys and, and uh, white cowboys in the Southwest love it. And it's, you know, it's, it's horse racing is, I think, having a hard time across the country as other sort of sports and, and gambling pursuits kind of um, compete with it. But it is pretty popular. I mean, the big race, uh, the biggest race of the year is in Ruidos, New Mexico, and the, the purse is three million bucks, I think, and the winning owner can get, you know, over a million dollars. So it's not, this is not a small-time sport. Our guest during this portion of the program is Joe Tone, author of the new book, Bones, Brothers, Horses, Cartels, and the Borderland Dream. 
And uh, he'll be speaking at uh, Midtown Scholar Bookstore in downtown Harrisburg uh, this Saturday, tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. And actually, I'll be speaking with Joe at uh, at that time on stage at the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. That's tomorrow at 4 o'clock at uh, the Midtown Scholar Bookstore in downtown Harrisburg. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Now, Joe, you describe in detail in the book how the horses are bought and sold. In some cases, we are talking big money. But somehow, Jose the Bricklayer, who is often called the good brother, bids on and becomes the owner of a horse that has champion bloodlines. How did that happen? Yeah, well, basically, back in Mexico, as Miguel uh, was gaining more power and money, he got really into quarter horse racing. And so he, along with uh, a lot of the other traffickers, started sending guys to these big auctions into the United States to buy up these horses. And then they would bring them back to Mexico and race them a little bit. Um, And sometimes they would send them over to the United States, but mostly they raced them in Mexico just for fun and to bet against each other. But Miguel, again, he sort of was flaunting the rules of the drug war, so he said, well, I want to send these horses to the United States, and I want to win the big races. And so he had one that was really fast, and he sent it over, and, uh, and it won a little bit. And so then he transferred it into his brother Jose's name, and that was kind of the first step that Jose had taken that we know of to sort of go into business with his brothers who were in the drug trafficking business. And it's really unclear why he did that, but you, know, you can see that after decades of laying bricks and his salary hadn't really risen and his family had grown and he had a daughter, an American daughter who's about to go off to college, that it was maybe an opportunity to make a little money without having to touch any drugs. And so suddenly he was showing up in the winter circle uh, with this horse having just won uh, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars at a time. Um, and then with that money, they decided to sort of further invest it in the quarter horse racing business. So all of a sudden, he showed up at an auction uh, and is bidding on a horse uh, that everybody knew was going to be the most expensive. It was a breeding mare that he could maybe eventually breed to this other to this uh, stallion that he would have and uh, ended up buying it for $875,000. And that's what sort of made everybody stand up and say, okay, this guy's a new player, and and who is he, and where does his money come from? And, you know, when you say that uh, the money came from his brother Miguel and Jose shows up with the money, uh, Jose and his wife, uh, even probably to this day, deny that that's where the money came from. They, They said they were lucky, right? Yeah, he's he's claimed all around all along basically that um you know, he that he bought that first horse uh, that I told you that came across and started winning hundreds of thousands of dollars that he bought that uh, that horse um from his brother for some small amount of money and then funded the rest of this operation um with the proceeds of that um you know, it, it it's uh, Spoiler alert, a jury didn't agree with that, um, and it's a tough case to make. Although, you know, that that horse did win a lot of money, and it, but it gets complicated because you got money going in and, and money going out and new horses and horses winning and horses dying, and it's, it's, it's hard to tell, but basically the government, you know, claimed that, that his business was being infused with this money from, this drug money from Mexico, 
and he always denied that. And all of a sudden, uh, Jose has lots of money to spend. It sounds as if uh, many of the other horse people, uh, the men and women who are, are bidding on these horses, were kind of intimidated by that money. They were afraid to outbid Jose in some cases, right? Because of who his brother was. No, I actually don't think that that was ever oh, really? the case. In fact, sometimes I think it was, uh, in a way, it was the opposite, in the, the opposite or slightly different. The, the people in the horse racing industry, first of all, there's been drug money in this, probably in uh, across the industry, but certainly in quarter horse racing for a long time. And everybody in the industry, uh, it's a multicultural industry, white and Mexican and Mexican-American. Everybody knew it, and everybody was kind of constantly facing the same choice of, do I... Do I do business with this money? They generally made the same choice, which was, yeah, you know, I don't know where the money comes from for sure, and it's not my business. And and uh, at this time in particular, it was the height of the recession. The industry was really struggling. They needed the money. So they were happy when Jose or any of these guys started bidding hard on a horse. And in fact, what they would often do is they would... If, they, if somebody was selling a horse and they saw that Jose or one of the people he was associated with was bidding on the horse, they would send somebody to keep bid and bidding and bid it up and bid it up and bid it up because they knew that Jose's funds were unlimited and that once his brother decided he wanted a horse, he was going to get the horse. Um, but, you know, certainly in Mexico it's true that if you were in competition with Miguel at the track, you didn't want to win. Um, that was kind of a known thing, that if you were going up against Miguel and you didn't know him too well, you weren't close, but your horse was racing against him, you were going to tell your jockey to shut it down early because you didn't want to accidentally beat the boss. Uh, Miguel is one of the most wanted people in Mexico and the U.S., uh, but the feds turned their attention in their investigation, an FBI agent by the name of Scott Lawson, uh, to Jose. And, you know, they had their suspicions all along that the bricklayer is getting money from his brother and the cartel, and the horse racing is how it's being laundered. Talk a little bit about Scott Lawson and his investigation. Yeah, so... Uh... Agent Lawson, he was a rookie FBI agent who was in his 20s. He was from Tennessee. He knew nothing of the border or Mexico or, or the drug wars, really. Um, graduated from Quantico, and he got sent down to the border. Uh, and that's, that's kind of, that's not the plum assignment if you're um, a rookie FBI agent. They, they don't generally love to get sent down there. Uh, and he just didn't know which end was up. Um, but suddenly the FBI gets this tip about this guy in Dallas who's bidding big on horses, and uh, there was a young, a young rancher from Austin, Texas, who was helping Jose. Um, and he was a white guy like Agent Lawson, and he was a young guy in his 20s. And so they, they sent Agent Lawson to go talk to him and see if he could explain what was going on. And that became Agent Lawson's sort of way into the quarter horse uh, racing industry. And then he just kind of stayed at it, and he went to auction houses and, and races and talked to people in the industry for years, basically trying to figure out if they could prove that the Losetas were using Jose and these horses to launder their money. So finally, indictments came down against a number of people, including uh, Jose and Miguel. Uh, so what were the outcomes of, of, of those trials? Yeah, eventually they felt like, you know, the FBI together with the IRS and the DEA, they felt like they they could essentially prove that this had become a scheme where Miguel would uh, launder his money 
um, through this business. And, you know, they would do it various ways, but mostly what they would do is they would have legitimate uh, seeming businessmen from Mexico or from the United States send wires or write checks to these auction houses and then uh, pay those people back in drug money in Mexico. In another case, uh, you know, they they kidnapped a guy and said, "We'll set you free, but you're going to go to you're going to go to the United States and you're going to spend and you're going to buy this horse." And it was a horse they owned, and they were essentially forcing him to to buy it for a ton of money, um, which would which would you know ostensibly be clean money, even though they had bought the horse with drug money. So that was kind of how they were doing it, and it was the feds believed it was all sort of a way for Miguel Trevino to um, create clean assets that his family in the United States, and particularly Jose, could have in their names. Because if you're in Mexico selling tons of drugs, you accumulate these huge piles of American cash. But there's only so much you can do with it. You could buy cars, you could buy ranches, you can uh, you know, do all those sorts of things, but it doesn't really create the kind of sustainable generational wealth. So, mm. yeah, they indicted they indicted uh, Jose and his wife uh, and his daughter uh, and several other Mexican horsemen and Mexican businessmen who were who were tied up in this. And you know, interestingly, I point out in the book that there were there were a lot of uh, white quarter horse. Um, industry folks who were also, you know, looped into this in, in ways, and none of them were, in, were indicted. And, and, and that's not to say that they should have been and these guys shouldn't have been, but I do think that that's, you know, an interesting outcome in this case is how, mm. how, well, how that happens. Well, Joe, you know, this sounds like a movie, and I understand there are movie rights to the book, right? Yeah, so we've optioned the rights to the book to a great production company called Anonymous Content, which... Um, has played a role in uh, True Detective and the movie Spotlight and uh, the movie The Revenant, and they've just done some great stuff, especially in recent years. The show Mr. Robot, a lot of really well-received stuff. And so we have a great screenwriter uh, named Mauricio Katz, who's actually Mexican and, and has written some movies about this kind of world before, and he's working hard on a script. And Hopefully, you know, we can take that to some big movie stars and, and make an, an interesting and a smart movie about it. You know, it's it's a little scary when you, you, you work so hard to make a book um, true and nuanced and compelling, and you get worried that Hollywood will screw it up, but we're, <laughs> we're hoping they can do it thoughtfully. Well, the book is Bones, Brothers, Horses, Cartels, and the Borderland Dream. Joe Tone is the author. He'll be at Midtown Scholar Bookstore tomorrow in Harrisburg from 4 to 6. Joe, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I'm going to go make my donation right now. Uh, okay. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. It's the last day of WITF's fall fundraising campaign, and State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick is here with us. It's great to be here, Scott. And just a reminder, you can go online to WITF.org or call us at 1-800-233-9483 with your contribution. It is the last day. We're wrapping this up. And on the final day of this fall fundraising drive, 
Drive, we have several longtime friends and members of WITF who collectively are asking you to support the programming featured on WITF through your financial contribution. Nick and Jean Seltz, Robert and Donna Pulo, Jeff and Susan Roof, and another generous couple who are all longtime supporters of WITF have decided to pool their resources to match your contribution dollar for dollar up to $2,000. So won't you accept their invitation and make your gift of support right now? Again, the website is WITF.org. You can click the Give Now button or you can call us at 1-800-233-9483. We are going to be on the air till 6.30 tonight asking for your support. If you've already contributed, we want to say thank you. Thank you to Stacy in Hummelstown, Aaron in Lancaster for your contributions during Smart Talk. We can't do this without you. We just remind you a few times a year um, that you are an important part of making this all a reality. So just think about what fits in your budget, whether it's $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, $30 a month, and pick a number and call us right now, 1-800-233-9483 or go to WITF.org. And thanks. Marie Cusick, thank you very much for being with us today. Coming up on Monday's program, as you know, Pennsylvania is officially at a state budget impasse. We're going to be talking about the, the budget, how some agencies and organizations are being impacted, and maybe even a lawsuit being filed against the governor and the legislature that comes up on Monday. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and nine nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart.